welcome to the latest episode of the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg, and in this issue we'll be talking about the Swedish experience of COVID-19, which has been adopted by both the alt-right and the conservative right in both the UK and the States as a preferable alternative to the model followed by Boris Johnson and most other European leaders. The public health official in charge of Sweden's response, Anders Tegnell, has called lockdowns of the kind previously embraced by Britain as using a hammer to kill a fly. There have been some restrictions in Sweden, as we'll hear, but there has been a far greater emphasis on life continuing as normal, and mask wearing is rare indeed. It is officially frowned upon. Tegnell's approach hasn't been conspicuously successful. Sweden has suffered a significantly higher death rate from COVID-19 than its Nordic neighbours, and its economic recovery has been no better. Despite that, his message has been echoed in mainstream sections of the UK media, with a Daily Mail opinion column recently referring to the latest partial lockdown in London and large parts of Northern England as authoritarian, and it said, with every turn of the Covid screw, the country descends further into insanity. From the same stable, Peter Hitchens has talked about lockdown lunacy whilst defending Sweden's methods. In this episode, we'll hear from a leading UK epidemiologist who tells us that in any case, it's simply pointless comparing us with them. We can't compare Sweden with the UK. Very, very different in terms of population density, demographic makeup, as well as public compliance and trust in government, etc. And later, how the voice of opposition in Sweden to Anders Tegnell's approach is being silenced. I know two doctors, at least one epidemiologist, who've actually left Sweden. And they've cited the reasons of leaving Sweden is that they cannot live in a country where scientific discourse is absolutely oppressed. All that to come. But before we get cracking, just a reminder that the Byline Times is an independent news source, reporting without fear or favour. We don't have a wealthy backer, we don't take government advertising. We're free of any corporate influence. That's all thanks to people like you who subscribe to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. It's a great read and it costs only £36 a year, a small price to pay for honest, independent journalism. You can find out more at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now let's start with a voice from Sweden. I first got interested in this story in April when I spoke to a hospital consultant from Stockholm, Dr Anders Janssen, who told me how the country was dealing with the first wave of coronavirus. One can say that it has been hesitant and low-key. Our state epidemiologist, Mr Tegnell, has been, I've heard him say that in an interview, is very much against taking unnecessary steps in the process, which means that in my opinion, we've reversed the way I think one should attack a problem like this, and that is when in doubt, early on in the epidemic, before we know a lot about the virus and the exact way it spreads, one should not take chances. One should be very active from the the get-go in trying to contain the disease. So early on, I was looking at other countries, how they were managing it. And, and we have countries like Singapore and Hong Kong and Taiwan, and now also South Korea, that have been very successful 
in actually containing the spread uh, from an early standpoint. And we didn't quite do that. The first thing that I feel went wrong is that we didn't quarantine people coming back from the Alps, from the Italian Alps, even though we had the, at the time a very good idea that the disease was spreading in the Alps. That, I think, was a major mistake, not to quarantine them, because we didn't even give them any advice on not putting risk groups at risk. We let them even work in the healthcare system or in care for the elderly. And the reason why we did that is that Anders Tegnell from the start has, as I understand it, based his his strategy on the notion that the virus is not to any significant extent contagious from asymptomatic people. And asymptomatic people are people who are not yet showing the symptoms? Exactly. They've caught the virus, but they have not yet developed symptoms. Anders Tegnell believes that if you are asymptomatic then, that if you have the virus but are not showing the symptoms, then you are not contagious to other people. That underlies the Swedish approach? Yeah, that's, that, that is my understanding, because otherwise I can't see how it could be rational to let these people even work with extremely high-risk patients. For example, there was nothing from the Swedish healthcare authorities that said that I couldn't go back and work with, say, in a hematology department where the patients totally lack an immune system for a number of weeks. You could, there was nothing, nothing expressed that you couldn't actually go back to, even that kind of work. So in theory, you could have visited the Italian Alps, where we know there was a a significant outbreak of coronavirus. As long as you were coming back into Sweden showing no symptoms, you could have gone and worked with very vulnerable people. Actually, the advice was that you should go back and work and live your life, lead your life exactly like usual. That was the only advice. No, they were not discussing any exceptions to it. So to my amazement, the whole Swedish healthcare and elder, elder care system um, just took this as a truth and acted accordingly. So these people actually went back to work. I've been contacted by nurses that were encouraged to go back to work, even in a hematology department. It has been said that Sweden and, and Great Britain actually started out the same way, doing a mitigation strategy. But as opposed to Sweden, at least Britain did quarantine all people coming back, no matter what they worked with, they were quarantined for 14 days. And even so, all those returning were also, on top of the quarantine, actively told to stay out of, not even, you know, visit the elderly or elderly uh, homes for the elderly or healthcare. You guys said, if you must, you have to call first and call that department first uh, to warn them that you're coming in. The initial approach was vastly different between uh, the UK and Sweden. Dr. Anders Janssen. Now, I'll play that interview to Dr. Deepdi Gerdasani, an epidemiologist at Queen Mary University of London. She has written for the Byline Times about the need for a clear coronavirus policy, driven by science and delivered to the public in a consistent manner. She gave me her appraisal of Anders Tegnell's approach and her reaction to Dr. Janssen's comments. I haven't obviously experienced this from the perspective of a health professional, but as an epidemiologist, I find myself nodding along. From 
a public health perspective, it's widely recognized in the scientific community that there has been a huge excess in death toll within Sweden, possibly as a result of policies that were adopted early on. We know that Sweden, for example, has had uh, one of the highest mortality rates from COVID-19 compared to other Nordic countries. And despite what many people consider potentially a laxer approach to national restrictions, they still have suffered the same impact to their economy as other Nordic countries like Denmark, Finland and Norway have. So they seem to have a much higher death toll, but with no actual benefit to their economy. That being said, I think there's also a bit of a misunderstanding about the Swedish model. It really hasn't been that Sweden has let the virus rip through the population without taking any measures at all. Uh, Unlike many other countries, there's been actually high public trust in the government and the government model within Sweden. And um, from very early on, people have been asked to physically distance. They've been asked to avoid mass gatherings. Uh, They've been encouraged to work from home, which actually many more people do in Sweden anyway, compared to other regions, making this much easier. And there have been policies that have been implemented in schools, for example, education for over 16s was made online for about three months while schools shut down for them. And for others, there's been fairly strict social distancing in schools with small class sizes, which are very fairly typical in Sweden. So there has been impact of those restrictions. But yes, there haven't been nationwide lockdowns and stay-at-home measures that we've seen in many other parts of Europe. So as you say, the death rate in Sweden is significantly higher than that of their Nordic neighbours of Denmark and Norway and Finland. Do you know how those figures compare? Yes, so I believe that the rate is about 600, I think, per million within Sweden. And it's almost tenfold lower, I think, for other Nordic countries. So the, the gap is very, very substantial. Yes, I'm looking at an article in the British Medical Journal. Sweden's death rate per million of population is 581 deaths. That of Finland, for example, is just 62 deaths. People point to the fact that Sweden has a lower death rate per million people than the UK. But I suppose it's the question of whether you're comparing apples with pears, whether you're really comparing like with like when you compare Sweden and the UK. No, I think there are many differences. And I I think the article that you're referring to in the BMJ and Independence Sage as well made the point that we can't compare Sweden with the UK. Very, very different in terms of population density, demographic makeup, as well as public compliance and trust in government, etc. And of course, the health infrastructures that are in place in in many of the Nordic countries. So it it certainly makes much more sense to compare them across each other. And when you compare them across each other, of course, the differences are extremely stark. And it's very difficult to say that the Swedish model in any way has been a success in public health terms. The phrase herd immunity was one that initially, anyway, Anders Tegnell, who's in charge of Sweden's policy in relation to coronavirus, was keen to avoid, and I think he actually denied using the phrase herd immunity. Nevertheless, in Sweden, it was taken as understood, taken as read, that that he was effectively going for a, a form of herd immunity. What's your understanding of that? 
Yes, I agree. I mean, I don't think that the Swedish government have have ever explicitly stated that they believed in any sort of a, a naturally acquired herd immunity approach. I think what they stated was the idea that uh, society could return to sort of near normal with certain measures in place if there was high compliance with those measures. Unfortunately, if those measures are not effective, in many ways, the impact can be the same as countries that are actually formally adopting the idea of a naturally acquired herd immunity approach. Because essentially, if we don't put restrictions in place, it leads to uncontrolled spread across the population, which invariably leads to large numbers of hospitalizations, health systems becoming overwhelmed, and large numbers of deaths, which is what we've seen in Sweden. So I think whether or not they formally thought about naturally acquired herd immunity, they certainly didn't claim to do so. But we did see the impact of uncontrolled spread anyway across Sweden. And what is the flaw in the notion of herd immunity? Because people will be familiar with the idea that across populations, a number of people will get infected with a particular virus. Perhaps once you've had the virus, you'll then become immune to it. What is the weakness of that? in regard to coronavirus? So the concept of herd immunity has largely been used in the context of vaccination, where we essentially understand that if a large majority of the population is vaccinated and immune to a certain disease agent, it protects the small number of people who aren't vaccinated because they're far less likely to come into contact with somebody who has the disease. It's not usually been used in humans in the context of naturally acquired infection. And this concept is flawed, not just for COVID, but for any other infectious disease. For no infectious disease have we ever used a strategy of exposing the population to the infectious disease to control it. That in itself is something that's not based in any sort of evidence or has been used in the past. For COVID, it's also clear that for like for other coronaviruses, we may not have long-term immunity and people are likely to get reinfected. In the absence of long-term immunity to natural infection, it's even harder to understand how uh, infection of vast swathes of the population would in any way benefit the population or lead to an end to uh, a COVID outbreak, because it's much more likely that infection would continue to occur in waves over time, which is what we see with most infectious diseases in the absence of vaccination. And it's what we refer to as endemic infection. The idea that you as an individual might acquire immunity in any event from contracting COVID-19 doesn't seem to be based on any evidence that, in fact, to the contrary, the evidence seems to be that, that you can catch it again. Yes, I mean, there is clear evidence for reinfection with COVID-19. And if you look at other coronaviruses, immunity is not long term for them. So the idea that infecting the entire population would completely control COVID and lead to an end to it is not based in any sort of science. To take it further, actually, even if we did have long term immunity against COVID, which there is no evidence for, even then, natural infection doesn't lead to an end of outbreaks. I mean, this is very clear with measles. So measles, for example, does lead to long-term immunity against disease. But we've seen in the absence of vaccination, natural infection of a population never led to end of measles outbreaks. Measles outbreaks did continue to occur as new people became susceptible, for example, because of new babies being born. And the only way we've managed to control measles despite long-term immunity is actually through vaccination. So 
even if we did have long-term immunity, this would, wouldn't be a viable strategy. And it's even more suspect for COVID-19 where we don't have any evidence of long-term immunity. Very interesting contribution into this debate as well, coming from the University of Gothenburg, a professor there, Andrew Ewing. And he said recently, so many people have died unnecessarily because of the mistakes we have made. That was an interview with the Swedish newspaper Aften Bladet. And he points out that in terms of death rate, Sweden hasn't only performed worse than its Nordic neighbours, it's also performed worse than Germany, which is a country with which Britain, it would seem to me, is much more comparable. So a suggestion perhaps that Germany is doing something or some things which Sweden hasn't done, which the UK hasn't done, and which perhaps we could learn from. Yes, certainly. I mean, Germany adopted very different strategies, I think, from many other countries in Europe early on. I think to begin with, their strategy was a lot more science-driven. I think the government worked very closely with the Robert Koch Institute and scientific advisors to make sure that it was in line with developing evidence. Public communication was very, very clear. And the seriousness of the crisis and the need for a collective response was communicated to the public really early on. A key part of the German response was really scaling up their uh, test, trace and isolate strategy to allow very rapid case detection, contact tracing, and isolation of people who either had infection or were exposed to infection. And we know that from models from Southeast Asia and other parts of the Pacific, that this strategy really, really works if it is put in place robustly, effectively, and rapidly. And they did all of this very, very early on and also responded to localized outbreaks when they happened Uh, very quickly. Because they had data constantly coming in from their case detection surveillance systems, they were able to identify surges in cases in local regions very quickly and respond early on. And as a result, have had uh, a much lower death rate than uh, many other parts of Europe. In terms of testing, tracing, isolating people, we know that the UK model has been rather unsuccessful so far. Are there any significant differences between the UK and Germany that would have prevented us adopting a similar model to them? I don't think there are any differences, which makes it very hard to understand, because actually the UK is a thriving area for biotech. We had lots of laboratories within biotech, within universities who could have easily scaled up capacity. The problem is that the UK government invested in test, trace and isolate very late Uh, First of all, they initially said that testing wasn't part of their strategy because we had gone past the containment stage to the delay stage, which in itself was not based in science. And second, when they did start investing in it, they uh, they invested in private companies that had absolutely no experience doing this in the past. And as a result, what we've seen is a completely shambolic strategy. The effectiveness of a test, trace, and isolate strategy depends on uh, about three things. The first thing is rapidity of testing. We need to ascertain whether somebody is infected very quickly. Then we need to find the the people they've been in contact with rapidly and comprehensively. So we need to reach at least 80% of contacts. And the third is we need to be able to get people who are infected or exposed to isolate and provide financial support for this. The UK strategy has completely failed in all three regards. So for example, we've had only 15 to 30% of 
tests being turned around within 24 hours in the private testing system. We've had less than 50% of contacts being traced and less than 20% of people who are asked to isolate are able to isolate due to lack of financial support. By contrast, if you actually look at the NHS part of test and trace because the UK government invested in private companies, but the National Health Service also carries out its own case detection and tracing for complex cases and for people who are hospitalized or for health workers. And among those, we find that more than 85% of uh, tests are carried out within 24 hours and more than uh, 95% of contacts are traced effectively. Uh, so if they had the NHS or local authorities or Public Health England or and localized public health directors been in charge of the strategy, it's very likely we would have done quite well. You think it is as simple as that, putting it under the control of the NHS and local public health trusts? I don't think it's just putting it under control of the local health trust and the NHS. It would have also required a lot more resourcing and funding of those uh, centres to be able to increase capacity. But given the government has poured billions into a private strategy that hasn't worked, they could have done that with local authorities and the NHS. And I think they would have needed to back up the strategy with a much better social financial support framework, which also hasn't happened in the UK compared to, say, uh, Germany, where this is much more comprehensive. Uh, there is absolutely no point scaling up things like testing if we're not able to get people to isolate when they're contacted to isolate. And this requires people to feel secure in their jobs, have adequate financial support to be able to do so. Yes, I think I saw a figure suggesting that only around 11% of people in the UK have observed their full quarantine period. In some cases, at least, that may be because people are poorly paid, they need to earn money in order to live. So you're suggesting better social support would have encouraged more people to observe their quarantine rules. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's very clear from the Public Health England data that people intend to isolate. So there's an intention, they want to, but they're not able to. A third factor I think that comes into play here is very poor public health communication within the UK versus uh, Germany. We've had very inconsistent communication from government at, at points really saying that this is a major crisis and at other points really minimizing the impact of COVID, saying it'll be over by Christmas, saying that people should eat out to help out and return to their workplaces. And we've also had a lot of U-turns on things like mass use and the scientific evidence behind this. And it's no surprise that the public are probably quite confused about the seriousness of this and what they need to do to collectively respond. Uh, I mean, clear public health communication is a cornerstone of public health response in the midst of a pandemic. And that's something that the UK has really failed on. In terms of test and trace, the Department of Health and Social Care said that NHS Test and Trace has contacted more than 1.1 million people and asked them to self-isolate. They said Dido Harding and her leadership team, drawn from the military, public and private sectors, have built the largest diagnostic industry the UK has ever seen. And they added, it is the equivalent of building an operation the size of Tesco in a matter of months. We need to improve in areas, and we are very much focused on that, but we should be talking it up, not down. I completely disagree with that. I think you have to measure 
how effective something in, in, in whether it works or not. It doesn't matter if it's an operation the size of Tesco, if it's actually not testing people rapidly, if it's not able to contact people's con- uh, contacts and not able to help people isolate. It's a completely ineffective strategy from a scientific perspective. And it's really unclear why we had to build up an operation from uh, like Tesco from scratch when we had local authorities and NHS labs and academic labs that have so much expertise in this area are far better, far more reliable and actually produce results on time. Just to conclude by going back to Sweden, there is a balance, many people would say, between the death toll in a country and the need to preserve life and preserving economic life, because from that, you can argue, flows improved mental health, improved health outcomes generally for people if they're able to feed and clothe themselves and have happy and fulfilled lives. Now, between April and June, the UK's economy shrank by just over 20%, 20 20.4%. Over the same period, Sweden's economy shrank, but only by 8.6%. So is there an argument to be made there in terms of a better balance between health cost and economic cost in the Swedish lockdown compared to the UK lockdown? I think the dichotomy is completely false, and there's so much evidence to back that up now. There is no trade-off between uh, the economy and public health. The public health is the strongest determinant of the economy. In fact, if you look at the data on this, it's very clear that countries that have managed to control COVID-19 well and early on have actually fared much better economically and had much lower hit to their GDP. If you look at Sweden, if you compare with UK, yes, it does look like it's done better. But if you compare Sweden with its Nordic neighbours, which is a much fairer comparison, Sweden has actually done no better than Denmark, Norway and Finland, despite having suffered a much greater death toll. I mean, I think it makes intuitive sense. If you have a pandemic with spread ongoing, you cannot expect there to be a lot of security among the public to have an open society where they return to economic activities. The best way to actually uh, protect the economy is essentially to bring to really control COVID and suppress it so that people can return to near normal life. People cannot return to near normal life in the midst of an uncontrolled pandemic. That's become very clear. Similarly, in terms of mental health and health in terms of chronic diseases, if we want to provide routine care to people, the best way to do that is to ensure that our health services are not overwhelmed with COVID-19. So there are no shortcuts in terms of protecting the economy and public health. It has to be done together. Dr. Deepthi Gurdasani. Just a reminder that you're listening to the Byline Times podcast. My name's Adrian Goldberg, and on the podcast, we feature some of the best writers and biggest stories from the Byline Times, which doesn't have corporate backers or bow the knee to any political interest. We rely instead on people like you to take out as subs to our brilliant monthly paper. Get more details at bylinetimes.com, bylinetimes.com. Now, one of the strangest features of the Swedish approach to coronavirus has been the relatively docile response of its citizens, which has become bound up in a sense that to speak out against Tegnell is to make you disloyal and somehow suspect. I suppose it's a bit like Brexit here. It's now become entangled with identitarianism and Swedish exceptionalism. I've contacted numerous Swedes who were simply afraid to go on the record. 
Keith Begg, an Irish expat who now lives in Stockholm, was moved to set up a group called Media Watchdogs of Sweden to provide an alternative voice to the mainly compliant mainstream media. How has he found living in Sweden during coronavirus? For me, I think I can sum it up in kind of three words. At the moment, it feels really scientifically, ethically and morally bankrupt to be living in Sweden at the moment. I have many friends who are scientists who have been vilified by the Swedish media and by the architects of the Swedish strategy for voicing or challenging uh, the status quo of what's going on in Sweden, especially around the strategy. So it's been incredibly difficult. Uh, For me, I have been self-isolating since March. But the pubs, cafes, the public transport, the gyms, they're they're full in Stockholm. And I don't know whether nobody seems to care, but it also seems that there's so much apathy around the severity of coronavirus. So that's why it feels to be very ethically and morally bankrupt uh, from what I'm witnessing in Sweden right now. When I spoke to Dr. Anders Janssen in April, who's a hospital consultant, he said he was concerned that asymptomatic people, people who may well have coronavirus but who are not showing the symptoms, were being allowed to work in care settings with older people and so on in hospitals. Has anything changed to your knowledge about that? There are thousands of care workers who are working on zero-hour contracts. So many of them are compelled to go to work even if they are sick. They do not receive or are exempt from receiving social welfare payments. And from what I've heard, I have a mother-in-law in a home in Yavle, which is about two hours north of Stockholm. They do not wear masks. The care home workers do not wear masks. And the PPE is quite lacking also. And we're hearing stories all the time. There is no cohesive strategy to protecting the elderly. In the UK imagination, Sweden is perhaps a a tad boring, but a, a country that is extremely efficient, a country that gets things done. And yet here it is standing apart from the world on this particular strategy. How do you explain that? Is it an example of Sweden getting things done that countries like Britain just just can't manage to get their act together in the same way? Well, I think uh, Sweden has had a very good PR strategy at promoting itself abroad. You know, the interest with the government here, it says that um, that all authorities literally have the power during uh, the pandemic. So the health authority here has the power and the government rest in the shadows. But there was a law passed that gave the government three months to initiate uh, strategies to slow the virus down. They didn't use that law. They didn't invoke that law. So as for efficiency, I would say, to describe what's happening in Sweden, it's organised chaos. It is different to the UK, isn't it? Uh, Apart from that legal proviso that you've mentioned, the power is vested into the public health officials rather than into the politicians, presumably to stop some of the the rows and the, the political mudslinging that we've seen here in the UK. Yes, absolutely. But these laws need to be updated. Sweden, in the last several years, has proved that its disaster management has been 
absolutely diabolical. I mean, if we go back to the 2018 uh, forest fires, they had to get help from all over Europe. There was no coordinated effort. And also with the Estonia disaster, where many hundreds of Swedes lost their life, there was no coordinated effort. So the fact is they've had many, many precedents of disastrous handling of events, and still they have not learned their lesson. And what has been the view of the Swedish public and the Swedish media to the Swedish exceptionalism, if you like, of the Tegnell plan? Well, you've hit the nail on the head when you say about exceptionalism, uh, and that has become more profound during the pandemic. You will hear many Swedish people saying, oh, we got it right and the world got it wrong. It's like as if there is just a a mask over facing the truth of what's happening here. The media here has been absolutely um, gaslighting uh, in relation to the severity of the pandemic. Um, They let... uh, incompetent, uh, from what many of us see, uh, incompetent experts uh, rule the roost and basically go unchallenged in the media. They will publish verbatim what they say without any challenges to what they're actually stating. And my big concern is uh, in the middle of the pandemic, the Swedish media were bailed out to the tune of 700 million Swedish kroners. So that's about 70 million euro. Now, this was at a time when most of the care homes across Sweden did not have oxygen. And not only that, frontline workers were being denied oral protection under uh, an Anders Tegnell edict that basically said that they were, that it wasn't needed. And even still today, masks are not recommended in hospitals. So the media has been really, really complicit in supporting a strategy that, in my view, has failed tragically and miserably also. So the Swedish media was bailed out to the tune of 700 million krona. In your view, that has compromised them. They have not been willing to speak out or challenge the Tegnell orthodoxy. Without a doubt, that has been the case. I know two doctors, at least one epidemiologist who've actually left Sweden. And they've cited the reasons of leaving Sweden is that they cannot live in a country where scientific discourse is absolutely oppressed. And if you don't follow the mainstream of what is being said, despite there being proof from meritorious research institutions and scientists from all over the world, um, you are vilified. Uh, And it has happened to so many scientists here. There's been smear campaigns against them, and it has forced many uh, into exile, essentially. And I know of many more that will follow. That's Keith Begg from Media Watchdogs of Sweden. My name's Adrian Goldberg, and you can read more from me about this at Byline Times. I'll be back with the podcast in a fortnight. Before I go, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times is an independent news source holding to account those with money and power. We can only do that because of people like you who subscribe to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. It's a great read and costs only £36 a year. A small price to pay for honest, independent journalism. Find out more at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.